road you have. You're not tuned in to the caucus rays. You just sat back and made a claim. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darvetta has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, fellow Jedi and Sith? It's your trusty companion, Kyle, ready to bestow upon you the grandest treasure in the galaxy, Star Wars Audio Archive. Prepare to be whisked away on an odyssey that will make your heart race and your inner child leap with joy. Buckle up, my interstellar pals, because we're about to embark on a journey that will make the Kessel Run seem like a leisure stroll. Are you ready to get this party started? Then let's get to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shigar paced the Auriga fire's cramped hold as best he could while waiting for Jet to patch him through to Tython. He wasn't doing a very good job of it. He could only manage three long strides from one side to the other, and he had banged his head on a protruding instrument panel twice already. The pointlessness of the exercise was just becoming apparent to him when the old model hollow projector flickered and emitted a soft whisper of static. He pulled from the opposite wall a retractable chair designed for someone much smaller than him and sat down, feeling all knees and elbows. A bluish image of the Grand Master formed. It flickered and jumped, but held firm enough to follow. Shagah, Satil Shan said, raising her hand in greeting. I'm pleased to hear from you. Are you on Hutta? He briefly outlined his current position in a smuggler's vessel over the hut's homeworld, still wearing what remained of his impromptu disguise. I find myself in an intractable position, and I need your counsel, Master. She smiled, slightly, but not unkindly. You have agreed to things you do not feel you can accomplish, or which you do not want to accomplish. Perhaps both. Her powers of perception startled him. You can sense this from so far away? Truly, she was the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy. She shook her head and smiled with charming self-deprecation. No, Shigar. I just remember what it's like to be in the field. Responsibility, decisions, consequences. They feel very different when assumed in isolation. Do they not, my Padawan? He lowered his head. Yes, Master. Tell me, and I will offer what counsel I can. Shigar started at the beginning, with his and Lorin's arrival on Hutta. He skipped the mundane details of his infiltration of the palace and described his first encounter with the unique technology offered for sale by Tassa Barish. The silver roots spreading out from the vault into the underground tunnels, and Lorin's account of the droid nest that Jet Nebula had pulled from the wreckage of the Cynthia. He described his three-way fight with Dao Striver and the young Sith, and the emergence of the Hexes and their near escape. You fought a Sith? Master Satil asked him, sounding impressed. I believe she was an apprentice like myself, else I wouldn't have survived. Regardless, a Sith and a Mandalorian at once, and you did survive. Few Padawans could boast of such a thing, Shigar. 
The fact that you are not boasting of it, I take to be a sign of good character. Master, I do not believe I survived by skill or even luck. In the retelling, he noticed several things that hadn't occurred to him at the time. Striver would have defeated both myself and the Sith Apprentice given time. The interruption of the Hexes changed everything. He no longer fought us. He stood back to watch us fight this new enemy. I believe he was holding back. She leaned back into her seat, cupping her chin with one hand. Shigar recognized the background. She was in her private study, an austere, minimalist space with few ornaments, but constructed from the finest possible aura wood. I see. Go on. He described the hexes in more detail. Beginning with the six-fold symmetry of their basic appearance, their identical lack of personality or individuality, and their deadly unwillingness to stand down. Then moving on to glimpses of their internal structure that he had received while killing one of them. The technology is quite outside my experience, he said, remembering the honeycomb matrices and strange oily fluids leaking from the body. The hexes are no more resourceful than any normal droid, certainly no more so than the training droids on Tython, but the display and adaptability I'd never seen before. An injured one merged with another to form a single eight-legged version. Later, one activated a camouflage system that the others didn't seem to possess, and the weapons of a third became more powerful. It almost seems like... Like what, Shigar? I don't want to say evolving, Master, but I do think they're capable of adaptive redesign. In the heat of combat? Yes. Particularly so, I suspect. That makes them very remarkable droids indeed. Who could have built such things? Envoy V.E. was interrogated by Dao's driver, Master. The Mandalorian let slip that Lima Zandrit was a droid maker. Do you think these are her creations, Shigar? I have too little information to say for certain, but what we do have is suggestive. She nodded. Indeed. Dao Striver was hunting both a particular droid maker and a ship containing the means to build remarkable droids. Lima Zandrit is most likely the architect of these things. But what is their purpose? If they are weapons, whom are they meant for? It's possible, Master, that they aren't weapons at all. Not aimed weapons, anyway. They may simply have been fighting to get home. To do what? Shigar had no speculation to offer on that point. He vividly remembered the droids' screeching rage at being obstructed in their quest to escape. Such emotional programming was not normal for combat droids, or any droids at all in his experience. There's something else, he said. When Striver confronted the Sith Apprentice, he said something about her mother. I don't know exactly what he meant, but it got a reaction from her. Whoever her mother is, She's connected somehow. He let that fact sit where it was. As it stood, the Sith's involvement was unexplained. While tempted to draw conclusions from suggestive facts, he thought it best to wait until they had more information. The wrong conclusion could be deadly if they based their actions upon it. Master Satil, it seemed, agreed. So, the thing in Asinzia wasn't an ancient artifact that we or the Sith might find useful. It was something strange and new. Where does that leave us? The Mandalorian has the Navicomp, he said. He'll be decoding the information it contains as we speak. And then what? His motives are unknown. 
Shigar said, casting his mind back to the things Ula and Lorin had said on the way to orbit. I believe that the Mandalorians have been involved in this from the beginning. Striver may have wanted the Navicomp in part to destroy evidence that the Sinzia's diplomatic mission was with Mandalore. But that makes less sense the more I think about it. Mandalorians aren't unified, and they don't parley with anyone. Fight or conquer, that's their philosophy. They allied themselves with the Empire against us, Master Satil reminded him. Yes, but that's the Empire, not some isolated colony in the middle of nowhere. She nodded. What are your plans now, Shigar? Are you returning Envoy V.E. and your friend to Coruscant? Shigar knew that look on his master's face. She already knew the answer to her question. She'd either worked it out or seen it in a vision. There was also a slight emphasis on the word friend that encouraged him to cast his answer in the frankest terms possible. Lorin thinks I can use psychometry to find this world. He held up the sliver of silvery alloy that she'd recovered from the nest. It glittered in a way that wasn't beautiful, but was certainly eye-catching. I think she places too much faith in my abilities. I would rather bring it to Tython for someone reliable to read it there. That would waste time, Shigar, and time may be of the essence. Do you know this, Master, or do you just suggest it? It doesn't matter. I do know that Lorin's faith in you is not unwarranted. Perhaps you should have faith in her, too. Does she strike you as a fantasist? Anything but. Lorin was as solid as a rock. She sees what she sees, and she says what she says. Well then, maybe the one who doesn't see is you, Shigar. Perhaps, Master. But if I fail... Metaphorically speaking, she said with a smile, if is the smallest word in the galactic standard lexicon... Yet it stands between us and our greatest dreams. Let it be a bridge, Shigar. It's time you crossed it. I will be waiting for you on the other side. He took a deep breath. Yes, Master. Meanwhile, I am hopeful that Supreme Commander Stantors will provide us with substantive backup. Where the Mandalorians are concerned, he's unlikely to take any chances. But it will undoubtedly be a military mission, not Jedi. I'll suggest rendezvousing at Honiger. Send coordinates to me there once you have them, and we'll get on our way. Shigar's mind reeled at the logistic efforts unfolding in response to his actions. Yes, Master. The Force is with you, Shigar. The line crackled and died. Shigar slumped momentarily into the seat, and then went to find somewhere quiet to meditate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Lorin hadn't intended to eavesdrop on Shigar's conversation with his master, but the Auriga fire was too small to allow anyone actual privacy. Where she and Dula sat facing each other was less than five meters away from Shigar, and the metal-lined corridors carried every sound. Ula spoke softly so as not to disturb him, and it was easy for Lorin to phase the envoy out. 
She found it much harder, though, to ignore the mess the Sith wretch had made of her hand. Just getting the glove off had been difficult. No painkillers existed sufficient to shield her entirely from the sensation of blended flesh and plastoid tearing apart. The Sith's lightsaber had melted both into a horrific seal, one that had stopped her from losing too much blood, but would have to be removed before the wound could properly heal. The medkit's initial scan revealed a mess of truncated bones and blood vessels beneath. It could only deal with them once the wound was cleared. That job fell to Ula, who wielded a sonic scalpel with more surety than she had expected. Ula talked her through the procedure in an attempt to reassure both of them, most likely. She gritted her teeth, unable to look away, and at the same time tried to focus her mind on something else. What are your plans now, Shigar? Are you returning Envoy V and your friend, Coruscant? That had to be Shigar's master, the legendary Satil Shan. Lorin wished she could see her image. She spoke with such surety and confidence, and Shigar responded to both in ways he probably wasn't even aware of, simultaneously trusting and rebelling. It was hard to imagine him in a junior role to anyone. Maybe the one who doesn't see is you, Shigar. There, said Ula, gingerly lifting the glove from her brutalized flesh. It came off in three pieces. He had resealed the major blood vessels with a laser cauterizer and applied a bone stabilizer compound. I think that's good enough to put in the med kit now. I'll dig around through the ship's cupboards later and see if I can find a prosthetic to tide you over until we get home. She didn't want to look at the ruins of her hand, but she had to. The cut ran neatly across all her metacarpals, leaving her without even a single finger stump. The pain was hazy and indistinct now, but very present. Her nerves were obviously still working. That was a good thing, she reminded herself, if she was ever to have a full prosthetic attached. The medkit swallowed what was left of her hand up to the wrist and hummed patiently to itself. The Force is with you, Shigar. Lorin heard him sigh, and then get up to move elsewhere in the ship. His footsteps thudded heavily, as though he were bearing a heavy weight. Doors opened and closed, sometimes prompted by a thump or two. Finally, he stopped. A door closed and sealed. Apart from the combined hum of life support and a dozen other machines, the ship was silent. I said, I have several carry bags full of brand newels, if you or anyone else wanted to change. She focused on Ula's face. What? Oh, yes, sorry. That's a good idea. Could you help me get my armor off? I won't be able to reach the seals down my right side until the med kit is finished. Of course, I'd be happy to. Together they wrestled her out of her arm and chest plates. The back defeated her entirely, so she showed him how to pop the waist seals and wriggle the shell free. Even through her body gloves, she felt the coolness of the air. She literally hadn't taken the armor off for days. On Coruscant, in the dangerous old districts, she had become used to sleeping in it most nights. The state of the armor dismayed her. It had been well used even before she bought it, but the last few days had tested it beyond reasonable expectations. It was dented, slashed, melted, pierced, and blackened. More than once, she found patches of blood she didn't even remember shedding. I can manage the rest, she said. There must be a fresher in here somewhere. I saw a small one near the starboard hold. 
Are you sure you'll be okay on your own? Most definitely. A girl's got to keep some secrets. He flushed a bright red, and she instantly regretted the joke. I'm sorry, she said, taking his hand. You've been a great help, Envoy V.E. The painkillers are making me feel a bit woozy. I might lie down after I've cleaned myself up. Yes, yes, you should rest. And please, call me Ula. Thank you, Ula. His hand was warm in hers. She surprised herself by not wanting to let him go. They sat without saying anything for a moment, and maybe the painkillers really were getting to her, because she felt herself tearing up at this tiny instant of human contact. She had been on her own for so long. Don't be an idiot, she told herself. Being in the Black Stars was never like this. We fought and killed together. We didn't hold hands. All right, Ula said, sounding embarrassed again. The luggage is in the crew quarters. I'll let you rummage through it. Call if you need anything. Anything at all. Lorraine nodded and wiped her nose. Ula let her hand go. When next she glanced up, he was gone. The Imperial shuttle came out of hyperspace above the green and empty world of Kant, deep in Bothan space. Kant's two moons possessed a sparkling array of asteroid companions. Among them lurked the seventeen vessels of the half-division granted to Darth Kratos by the Dark Council. The bulk cruiser at its head, an aging hollow-nosed Kaiser Volvec behemoth called Paramount, hung low and heavy dead ahead. Axe felt an anticipatory dread as the shuttle swooped into dock. She had cleaned the wounds on her face and neck and changed into clean attire. Still, she felt unready for what was surely to come. A full detail awaited her on the hangar deck. She ignored their salute. Where's the technician I asked for? Specialist Padesic is on her way, my lord. Not good enough. I asked for one to be here when I arrived. What about Darth Kratos? Is he on his way, too? No, my lord. He wishes you to attend him immediately. Again, not good enough. She wrapped the force around the man's throat and squeezed until he gasped. Tell him that I have important work to oversee, and I will not be distracted. Yes, sir. The red-faced soldier managed she let him go, and he scurried off to obey her orders. Behind her... The pilot and another grunt carried a sealed metal case down the ramp with exaggerated care. She had impressed upon them the importance of its contents. If anything happened to the remains of the hex, she was sunk, along with the mission. I need somewhere secure to open this box, she told the next soldier in line. Show me to the nearest quarantine bay. Yes, my lord. He snapped her neatly on his heel and led her to a glass-windowed room set into one wall of the hangar deck, the box promptly followed. The quarantine bay was small, but well-equipped. The box went onto the floor next to the gleaming metal table. A heavy-breathing droid tech finally arrived, and Axe sent everyone else packing. Inside that box is a droid, she told the technician. And inside the droid is information of the greatest possible importance. It's your job to get it out. I understand, my lord. Good. Well, open it! Specialist Pedesic unsealed her clasps, stared for a moment at what lay within, then reached in to scoop out the remains. 
The dead hex had collapsed in on itself and was now reduced to the size of a small human child. Its legs curled protectively around its midriff. Dark brown fluid stained everything. I've never seen anything like this before, Podesic told her, wiping her hands on a cloth she produced from inside her uniform. What you've seen or done before doesn't concern me, Axe said. It's what happens now that matters. If I said this was a matter of life and death, I wouldn't be exaggerating. For you, it certainly is. Podesic swallowed. Let me send for some more equipment, and I'll get started right away. Axe nodded. You have one hour. She swept out of the quarantine bay, past the double guard stationed at the door, and went to find her master. The blow came so fast she couldn't avoid it, even though she'd expected it from the moment she boarded the Paramount. She felt herself swept up and thrust with crushing force into the nearest bulkhead, and held there, unable to move. You were sent to Hata to claim one thing. The deadly hiss of her master's voice slid like a red-hot needle into her right ear. She could feel him next to her, even though the room was in absolute darkness. His presence was like a foul, burning fire in the fabric of space itself. One thing only, he repeated. Yet you return without it. You stand by while the Emperor's official envoy is killed, and you delay before reporting to me. What am I to do with you, Eldon Axe? What punishment would be most fitting? The envoy was a puppet, she managed in her own defense. They always are, but they remain the public face of the Emperor. To slight one of them is to slight him. Would you be party to such a thing? Should he be informed that you have allowed his authority to be disrespected? No, Master. That was not my intent. Perhaps it was not. It is hard to be certain. Your confusion is exposed to me. You are weakened by attachment, by the existence of a mother. She flinched away from him as though physically struck. You lie! she cried, even though part of her worried that it might be the truth. The lights burst on, blindingly bright. She fell to the floor, released, and blinked away bright after-images. The square, black, and empty apart from her master's meditation sarcophagus, mounted securely in the center. He was inside it, his withered face hidden safely behind the lid. He had never been standing beside her at all. Allow me to explain, Master. If you cannot, I will crush your mind to dust. She began with her attempt to infiltrate the vault, and moved quickly on to her confrontation first with the Jedi Padawan, then with Dao Driver. Darth Kratos was displeased at her inability to slay either of her enemies, and she felt his feverish will coiling about her again. But she plowed on without hesitation. Her fate rested on convincing him of the worth of the hexes. Droids, he breathed. Lima Sandret was a droid maker. This surely confirms beyond all possible doubt that the Cinzia was connected to her, doesn't it, Master? Do you have any other evidence? She pushed aside a memory of the hexes' relentless screeching. They consistently attacked me first, as though they possessed an embedded resentment of the Sith. 
Otherwise, they lashed out only when either attacked themselves or their way was impeded. Suggestive indeed. You say the Mandalorian had the measure of them, as though he had seen their kind before? He held back until it was clear the Hexes were going to escape. I find that very interesting, too. The Huts clearly had no idea what they found, Master. They might have sold it for the material value alone, had it not been activated. Do you think your presence triggered some kind of awakening? No, Master. It was a matter of expediency. The seed factory remained relatively quiescent until circumstances ruled that tactic unworkable. Then it moved to another tactic. If the auction had been held a week later, I believe the Hexes would have escaped unchecked into the Hutta biosphere, and from there made their journey home. To report, I presume? Yes, Master. Can you recover their root from the remains you brought here? I intend to, Master. If you do not, I will flay you alive in front of the Dark Council before they in turn flay me. Yes, Master. Abase yourself before me, he told her. And swear to me that the thought I see in your mind is not another reason I should kill you now. She froze. All she had been thinking was that the Hexes fought her as hard as they had fought her enemies. Harder, in fact, because she was a Sith. Surely, instead, they should have recognized her and held back. After all, Lima Zandrit had created both of them. She had even named the ship after her daughter. They should be her allies, not her enemies. Darth Kratos held her mind like an egg, ready to crack it with a thought. She did exactly as he said, pressing herself face down onto the cold metal floor to reaffirm her allegiance to him. I remain your trustworthy servant, she said. I am yours to kill if you deem it fit. She waited, hardly daring to breathe, and gradually the pressure eased. You shall live, her master told her. For now, find me the location of that planet. If you fail me again, I will show no mercy. Do you understand me? Yes, master. Leave. She went. Only when she was sure she had reached a safe distance did she dare think. You can expect no mercy from me, master. The day our positions are reversed. The very second the medkit bleeped to tell her its work was done, Lorin slid her half-hand free and headed for the refresher. She was tired and ached all over, but this couldn't wait. There was only so much she could ask of a self-cleaning body glove. A good rinse was exactly what it needed. When she was done, she did as Ula had suggested and looked through his suitcases for anything she might be able to wear. Much of it was formal wear and still vacuum-sealed in its original packaging. A lot of it was also made from more expensive natural fabric, and therefore not amenable to on-the-fly adjustments. But Ula wasn't significantly larger than she. Eventually, she found dark blue pants and a matching jacket with a militaristic cut. The sleeves and legs came up to match her length, and the other measurements pulled in tight enough. With the black body glove underneath, she almost looked stylish, but for the bruises on her face and the missing fingers on her left hand. Lorin considered what she had told Ula she would do, and rejected it. She was tired, but knew she wouldn't be able to sleep. The first thing she noticed on leaving the refresher was that the ship wasn't moving. It was still in orbit about Hutta. 
She explored the main level of the Auriga fire. Hetchke was sound asleep in the crew quarters, and like any good soldier, hadn't been disturbed by her rummaging around. Soft male voices coming down the stairwell from the cockpit belonged to Jet and Ula. All the holds she poked her head into were empty. Bar one. Shigar sat cross-legged with hands folded across his lap and eyes closed. The silver scrap sat innocently on the floor in front of him. His face was expressionless, but she could feel the tension radiating from him like an audible twang. He looked like she had felt half an hour earlier, exhausted, dirty, and beaten half to death. She went and got the med kit. Your arm, she told him when she returned. How are you going to achieve anything if you bleed out here in the dark? Without moving a single other muscle, he opened his eyes. I can't do it anyway, Lorin. You know you'll never be able to prove that true, she said, holding the med kit at him like a challenge. All you can prove is that you've stopped trying. But if you distract me, that's not the same thing as giving up. That's called a regroup. I'm your reinforcements. His mask of concentration finally broke into a faint smile. I'd happily trade places with you. Me too, she said, raising her injured hand. He took the med kit from her without another word. She explained the clothing situation while he tended his arm. He nodded vaguely. She slid down the wall and sat with her back against it. He didn't stop her. By the light spilling through the open door, he looked much older than she knew him to be. Everyone is waiting for me, he said as the med kit hummed away. Not just you and Master Satil, Supreme Commander Stantors, hundreds of soldiers and starfighter pilots, the entire Republic, waiting for me to do something I've never been able to do. Not properly, anyway. It comes and goes. It's not reliable. I can tell you where your armor came from, but this thing? The piece of droidness glinted impassively back at him. What about my armor? She said. Once, when I brushed against it, I got a flash of its former owner. She was a sniper from Tatooine. She got a medal for taking out a local exchange boss. What happened to her? She didn't die in the armor or anything, if that's what you're worried about. Loren nodded, feeling a small amount of relief. Maybe she was promoted out of the field and took the armor with her. That happens sometimes. But she sold it, he said. Would she have needed the money that badly? Her kids might have. It's old armor, Shigar. Last in action before the Treaty of Coruscant. Took me a lot of work to get it into the shape it was, let me tell you. You could have bought new armor anytime, he said. But you didn't want to. It's a symbol, standing in for all the things that need to be fixed. Is that what you think? Just a guess. His green eyes watched her unblinkingly. She felt sometimes that they looked right into her. Sometimes she liked that feeling. Sometimes she didn't. You're thinking too much, she told him. That's what I've been trained to do. I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure the Grand Master trained you to think just enough and no more. But the lesson hasn't quite sunk in yet because people only learn it the hard way. And that's where you are right now. Absolutely stuck in a hard place. Right? Still, he didn't look away. Maybe. Maybe nothing. You know you have to do something. You know what it is, and you know why it has to be done. But you can't do it because you're too busy going over it and over it, making sure you're absolutely right. 
Most of you knows you are right, but there's a small part that wants to think it over one more time. The reasons, the method, the fallout, whatever. Like you can plan everything in advance and then just sit back and watch it happen so perfectly you don't even have to be there to do it. Things will just happen on their own. Maybe you don't need to do anything if you think about it hard enough. That's always worth hoping for. You're speaking from experience, I can tell. You bet, she said. But then she stopped. The words had dried up. It's okay, he said. You don't have to tell me. No, I do. I need to tell someone one day. It might as well be you. Now. She felt her face growing warm. And she turned away, hoping he couldn't see. I ratted on a superior officer. I presume you had a reason. The best. Sergeant Donbar was corrupt. But that didn't change anything. I went against the chain of command and reported him to his superiors. They slapped him down and discharged him. But the reason for it was hushed up. There were always going to be people who didn't believe me. Thought I was doing it out of a grudge. But because of the secrecy, I couldn't defend myself. No one wants special forces to look bad. And he was about as bad as it gets. He was discharged and eventually I quit. It got way too uncomfortable. Do you regret it? Sometimes, she said, thinking of the Zabrak on Coruscant. But it had to be done. If I tried to capture the weeks of agonizing I went through leading up to me actually doing it, I'd bore you to death. The skin around his eyes tightened. And now you think I should just get over myself and do what I have to do. You don't agree? Not at all. Finding a planet that could be anywhere in wild space is a little different from putting in a report, don't you think? Sure it's different. You don't stand to lose every friend you've ever had if you do the right thing. And you've actually been training for this most of your life. Remember, Shigar, that you didn't have to crawl up from nowhere to get where you are. You were handpicked from everyone on Kifu to be a Jedi Knight. Whatever happens today, you'll go back to the life you know. So you can do it at your own pace, or you can do it when you need to do it. I, for one, think there's only one right choice. He looked away. You came to tell me you think I've got it easy. That makes a huge difference. Thanks. His sarcasm stung. Lorin didn't know what she'd come to him for, really, except to break him out of his funk. She was surprised at how deep the feelings ran and the harshness with which she had spoken. It was hard to tell how much was for his benefit. All right, then, she said. I'll leave you to it. When she stood, her knees practically shook with fatigue. I will do it, he said. I have to. Well, keep it down when you do. I'm going to catch up on some sleep. She didn't wait for a snappy comeback, if he had one. Letting her legs work on autopilot, she went to a bunk in the crew quarters and was asleep before her head hit the pillow. Shigar listened to her go. Already he regretted the way he had reacted to her combined advice and confession. Clearly she had been building up to the latter part for some time, and he should have showed more compassion. But he was so bound up in his own issues, his own self-centered mess, that he hadn't been able to see the raw wound she had exposed to him. Not her hand, but the aching severance from everything she had once held dear. How would he feel, he asked himself, if he had to turn his back on the Jedi Order? 
It was impossible to imagine Master Satil ever doing anything counter to the code he lived by. But famous Jedi had fallen to the dark side before. What if he discovered that she was in fact working against the Council? And what if he knew that her word would be taken against his? Was his sense of justice strong enough to make the call anyway, as Lorenz had been? Once he would have been completely sure of himself. Now, after his dealings with Tassar Barish, he wasn't so sure. And still, there was the matter of the mysterious world waiting to be resolved. The piece of droid nest glinted impassively back at him. Lorin was right on one point. Sitting around thinking about it would get him nowhere. All the time he had been isolated in the dark, he hadn't even touched the silver sliver. He had been trying and failing to get his mind into the right state, believing that there was no point even starting until he was completely ready. Lorin's faith in you is not unwarranted. Perhaps you should have faith in her, too. Shigar remembered how he had felt when Master Satil had ordered him to go to Hata. He had invited Lorin along because he felt she needed him to prove something to herself. She was full of bluster, but lacking a clear sense of purpose. Now he understood why that core of her life was missing, and it was he who needed to prove something. If he didn't, he would do much worse than let down his master and the Republic. He would fail himself. There's only one right choice. He picked up the sliver of metal. It was cool and sharp-edged to the touch. If he put it in his right fist and squeezed, it would surely draw blood. He engulfed it in his fist and squeezed. The bottom dropped out of the hold, and he was suddenly falling. His first thought was to grab hold of something and hang on, both mentally and physically. This was utterly unlike any psychometric information he had ever received before. But what he was reading this time was unlike anything he'd tried touching before, so fighting the vision could be self-defeating. Perhaps being plunged in the deep end was exactly what he needed. He braced himself against the rush of vertigo and tried to take from the experience what he could. Falling. At first there seemed nothing more to it than that. Then he noticed details highly reminiscent of the strange blue geometry of hyperspace. Was that what he was glimpsing? The nest last journey? Or its first? There was a blinding flash of light, and then he stopped with a jerk. All was dark again. Voices came and went, too indistinct to make out words. They were raised, though, as if in an argument. He could make out no faces, no locations, no coordinates. Just a feeling that the thing the sliver had belonged to was determined to survive. The Cinzia, he thought. He was spooling back through the droid factory's history, in reverse. It clearly possessed a rudimentary self-awareness, which shouldn't have come as a surprise, since it had single-handedly organized the surreptitious creation of four advanced combat droids without being detected. Even if most of its internal algorithms were automated, it had taken a certain degree of cunning to know when to lay low and when to become active. The flash was probably the explosion that had almost killed it, Shigar wanted to get moving again. The next jump would be the one that would take him home, to where the droid factory had originated. But his eagerness only caused the vision to fray about the edges, and suddenly he was dumped back onto the hard floor of the hold, with nothing to show for the experience. He sat, breathing heavily, and cursing his impatience. When he opened his right hand, 
The sliver rested on his palm in a growing pool of blood. What had he done this time compared with all the other times before that had worked? He could guess the answer, and it was dismayingly simple. He hadn't done anything special. He'd just done it. The force had moved through him in exactly the right way, and the knowledge he'd been looking for had come to him. It hadn't taken any particular degree of concentration or any fancy mental footwork. He had done it because he could do it. There was a fair chance he hadn't always been able to do it. He was sure that all those years of training hadn't been for nothing. But at some point, as Lorin had said, all the extra thinking he did on the subject had been wasted. It had, in fact, been counterproductive. The next question was, could he do it again? He didn't need to ask. He didn't want to ask. The time for questions was over. He transferred the sliver to his left hand and squeezed again. A second vision of hyperspace enfolded him, falling faster this time. The blue tunnel was twisted, warped. He felt dizzy. Mysterious forces tugged at him, shook him violently at times. He felt like he was running down a steep mountain and that at any moment he might trip and tumble headlong all the way to the bottom. As the droid factory's journey unspooled backward in time, it took him into a deep, dark place. Shigar didn't question the vision. He let it unfold at its own pace. The shuddering grew worse as he neared the Sinzia's origin, until he felt that he might be torn apart. When it ceased, all was quiet. He felt a sense of homecoming, even though that was surely illusory. The factory was a machine. It had been leaving its homeworld, not arriving there. But the feeling was persuasive. He felt that he belonged here, and that here, wherever here was, was important and precious, unique. Shigar understood that feeling, even though he'd never felt it for Kifu, his birthplace. Shigar had been a citizen of the galaxy for too long to feel close ties anywhere. Again, he thought of Lorin and her changed circumstances. She, too, had taken great strides across the Republic and beyond. But now she was stuck on Coruscant, or had been until his arrival. She had never expressed any unhappiness about her relative confinement, but he could only imagine how it must feel. The droid factory felt as though it belonged. Wherever it came from, that was where it had wanted to be, and Lorin had killed it. Perhaps, he thought, that had been a mercy. More voices, this time with blurry faces. Human men and women. Shigar didn't recognize any of them. He made out some words, though, including the Hex's furious catch cry. It was being chanted by a group of people, including a woman of middle years with short, ashen blonde hair and intelligent eyes. Her hand was raised above her head. She was shaking her fist at the sky. But it wasn't a sky at all. It was a roof. She was in a large space with a tubular tank at its center, filled with red. Shigar didn't fight the vision. He just told it, I want to be inside her head. And he was. He was enfolded by a turbulent flow of thoughts and sensory impressions. He tumbled, slightly in awe of how easy it had been. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Perhaps there was something special about her, this Lima Zandrit. For it was indeed her. He was buffeted by her rage. He found strength in her determination to live unfettered. 
he grew weary at the understanding that all things must eventually be compromised or die. He felt satisfaction at all her achievements. He wept at the mingled love and loss of a child. Shigar looked through her eyes at the world she had adopted for her own and felt pride tinged with worry and an intense desire for revenge. We do not recognize your authority. And there it was at last. Everything he had been looking for. The dense metallic world, rich with change and vigor, where no one would have looked for it in a million years. His eyes snapped open. He didn't feel the pain of the cuts to his palms. He had forgotten the various aches and pains of his body earned the hard way on Hata. He felt only a degree of gratitude that he had never experienced before, blended with a powerful sense of achievement. Climbing to his feet, he hurried to the crew quarters. Lorin was already fast asleep. He thought about waking her to tell her the news, but reined in the impulse. She deserved her rest. He could thank her later. Ula and Jet were in the cockpit. He clambered up the ladder and burst into their conversation. I know where it is. The world? asked Ula, looking up in surprise. Yes, I found it. Good for you, mate, said Jet. Got some coordinates for me? Not exactly, Shigar said. But I can describe it to you. I think it'll be fairly easy to pin down. Well, great. I'm very tired of the view here. Take a seat and we'll get started. Shigar felt his sense of triumph ebb slightly at the thought of what lay ahead of them. What? asked Ula, staring at his face. Is there a problem? You could say that. Their faces fell in unison as he told them. Finding the planet was one thing. Getting there would be another entirely. Specialist Pedesic looked up as Axe walked into the quarantine bay. The space had been transformed. Large pieces of equipment hovered over the dissection table, connected by thick cables to the bulk cruiser's main processor arrays. The remains of the hex had been splayed like a delicate tapestry, revealing intricate details of its structure and function. The cell walls that made it robust as well as lightweight were threaded with shining metal, suggesting that they performed key functions as well as providing internal support. She saw several fist-sized globes, like round silver eggs, nestling against more familiar components. The legs had been removed entirely from complex-looking joints and stacked like metal antlers in a transparent steel jar. I have much to report, sir, the specialist said. She had rolled her sleeves up and her arms were smeared with brown-black goo up to her elbows. Then do so. Axe stood with her hands on her hips at one end of the table. She had been generous. The specialist had had more than an hour. If Darth Kratos had not been so conversational in his discipline, Axe would have come back much sooner. Well, the first thing I can tell you is that this thing, whatever it is, isn't finished. Pedesic selected a slender tip tool from the many surrounding her workspace and pointed as she talked. See here... Its neuroweb was interrupted before the completion of a full suite of reflex analogs. And here, there's a full array of sensors about to come online down this dorsal region, but it's totally unconnected to the central computer. The reporting system has only grown to here and has yet to join the two. You mean it was released too early, before it was ready? There's evidence to suggest that it was continuing to develop after it left the factory that built it. 
I suggest this thing would have finished itself given time. Axe remembered how ferociously the thing had fought, and it hadn't even been complete. What would the final form have been like? It's impossible to say. The main databank doesn't contain a single template. Instead, there are many, with lots of transitional forms. And there's a biological component, too, that I find very puzzling. This brown stuff must perform some function. Otherwise, it wouldn't be present in such quantities. Perhaps it acts as a randomizing agent, encouraging it to adapt more fluidly. It's hard to analyze, though, because it's been so severely cooked. She looked at Axe reproachfully, as though blaming her for the condition of the sample. In this case, Axe was completely innocent. Either the Jedi or the Mandalorian had done that job for her. And either way, it was irrelevant. So you've accessed the brain, then? Yes, just this minute. How smart was it? Could it fly a ship, for instance? Not likely, my lord. But if it needed to, it could change itself so it could. Like birds grow new parts of their brains in spring to learn new songs. It's just a matter of... Axe waved her silent. Is the data encoded? Naturally. But the cipher is based on an imperial system that went out of use 15 years ago. When Lena Zandret fled the Empire, Axe remembered. I'll crack it soon. Don't worry, my lord. The fact that the thing was incomplete actually made getting in easier. All I have to do is map the architecture and find my way around. Axe didn't pay attention to the specifics, and she hadn't been aware that she'd looked worried. If this specialist couldn't do the job, she'd just get another. All I want to know is where this thing came from, she said. And I want to know now. Specialist Padisic nodded. Yes, my lord. With your permission, I'll resume my examination. Axe indicated with a flick of one index finger that the specialist should return to work. While Axe waited, she paced the crowded space, reading raw data and coming to her own conclusions. Nothing she saw contradicted the specialist's opinions, and there was much more to be absorbed than could have been crammed into that short conversation. The globes contained the Hex's primary processors, where sensory data converged, was exchanged, and provoked various environmental responses. The weapons on each hand were little different in principle from standard blaster technology, but remarkably miniaturized and integrated into a limb capable of gripping and supporting weight as well. This hex had no camouflage system to analyze, and unfortunately the electromirror defense was too badly damaged to reverse engineer. Whole sections of its body had been fried to ash. I've cracked the code, my lord, said the specialist. Axe hurried to peer over her shoulder. Scrolling through a hollow pad was a list of symbols, the blocks from which the hex's mind and all its actions were built. None of the commands, language rules, and algorithms, however, looked remotely familiar to Axe. These control the hex? The droid, I mean? Yes. Could we use them to control others? I fear not. These particular commands are generated within the device itself, a unique and purely internal system for coordinating its many parts. Each droid would have a different system, so what we've gained is merely the language for this droid, which is now dead. All right, but you have translated it in this case. Yes. So find me what I'm looking for. Time is short. I have a Mandalorian to beat, she said silently to herself. And if I lose, you are going to pay dearly. The specialist bent low over the section of the hex she had exposed. 
remotely operating manipulators capable of tinier measurements than any human could make. Data scrolled dizzyingly in all directions through the holopad, too fast for Axe to follow. Her head soon ached from concentrating too hard on something she didn't really understand. You have one minute, she told the specialist. My lord, I found it, Padisic said. Name, hyperspace coordinates. Give them to me. A sudden upwelling of excitement filled her. Now! Where are you, mother? Specialist Padisic rattled off a long string of numbers. Axe closed her eyes, visualizing roughly where the location fit into the galactic disk. It didn't. It was well above the mid-rim, in the middle of nowhere. Axe opened her eyes. Are you sure that's what's in its head? Positive, sir. Although it doesn't make sense, does it? There's nothing out there. Nothing at all. Well, Axe told herself, that wasn't entirely true. There were cold dwarfs and orphaned gas giants and all manner of strange stellar beasts. And it was an undiscovered world, after all, fit for traitorous droid makers on the run from the Sith. It wasn't unreasonable that people desperate to keep their location a secret might have traveled parsecs out of their way to obscure any chance of pursuit. But what had led Lima Zandrit to that isolated haven in the first place? What had encouraged her to look in that direction? The odds of her taking a ship on a long jump to nowhere and just happening to arrive at a habitable world were minute. Run the coordinates through Imperial Records, she told the specialist. I'm guessing we'll find something in there. The request went to the ship's databanks. Axe tapped her finger on the dissection table as she waited for the response. It took longer than expected, and she had time enough to observe just how much the baked organic residue looked like dried blood. With a chime, the holopad produced a single line of information. Now that really is impossible, said the specialist. Try again. The specialist repeated the procedure from scratch, extracting the embedded data and feeding it into the records. The same result came back. It must be a bluff, the specialist said. A false location to throw us off the scent. Don't think so, said Axe. Everything about it looks wrong, but that tells me we must be right. I told you we'd find something, didn't I? But it's a black hole, said the specialist. I know. I can read it with my own eyes. Axe felt as though that distant dead star had reached out and clutched her with its irresistible gravity. She was absolutely certain that this was where she would find Lima Zandrit, builder of droids who spoke with her own voice. I think you'd better give me the name now, she said. We'll be leaving as soon as the course is plotted. Did that just happen? Did we just hear that in part seven? The magnificence of the Star Wars universe knows no bounds. Like a monkey lizard strapped to a raincore. It just left us in awe for what's to come next. But before we progress to the next episode, we have to get through this one first. So that means that we have to unveil the quote. And this episode's quote comes to us from the one and only Ahsoka Tano. Do not be afraid to fail. It is not the end of the universe. It is not the end of you. It's just a step on a path to learning in the vast tapestry of the Force. Now that was a pretty epic quote, so let me explain it. There exists a profound truth that has a power to redefine our perspective of failure. It is a truth that liberates us from the shackles of fear and empowers us to embrace the full potential of our journey. This quote speaks of the idea of failure. It is far from being a catastrophic event. It is simply a natural part of the journey towards success. It encourages us to confront our fears, to embrace uncertainty, 
support us through these daring leaps that we unlock the hidden treasures of wisdom and experience. Failure, when reframed as a stepping stone on the path to learning, it becomes a teacher, growing us towards new insight, alternative approaches, and discovering our true capabilities. Every stumble and setback becomes a valuable lesson, equipping us with knowledge and resilience necessary to navigate the complexity of life. By releasing our fear of failure, we open ourselves up to a world of limitless possibilities. We become more willing to take risks, to push the boundaries, and to challenge the status quo. Understanding that failure is not a reflection of our own worth, but rather a catalyst for personal evaluation. And when we let go of our fear of failure, we free ourselves to explore new horizons, to conquer our dreams, and to become the best version of ourselves. Embracing failure as a companion on your journey, a wise teacher guiding us towards unparalleled knowledge and resilience. The world does not end with failure. You do not end with failure. Instead, you rise from the ashes stronger, wiser, and ready to embark on the next chapter of your remarkable story. And I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I hope you will join me next time for more adventures in the Star Wars galaxy. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.